This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the US-China Trade War Podcast. I'm Finbar Birmingham on the Political Economy Desk here at the South China Morning Post. It's the first week of September, but things show no sign of cooling down on the trade and geopolitics beat. As the US election fever ratchets up a notch, it becomes clear that China will become one, if not the top issue in this year's campaign. Last time out, Donald Trump ran on a ticket of bringing back US jobs from China, as well as leveling the gaping trade deficit with the Chinese economy. How's that going for him? Well, data came out of Washington last night showing that four years into Trump's first term in office, the trade deficit is as wide as it was before he took office. Here's what Trump had to say at a campaign rally in May 2016. But when the Chinese come in, and they want to make great trade deals, and they make the best trade deals, and not anymore. When I'm there, we turn it around, folks. We turn it around. We have a $500 billion deficit, trade deficit with China. We're going to turn it around because we can't continue to allow China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. But the deficit was wider than it was then in July, 9.1% wider. What does that say for Trump's trade war? Was it all in vain? Will this stop candidates from making promises they can't keep this time around? Of course not, but we will frisk those numbers with John Carter and Joe Shin, our political economy editors, on this week's show. We'll also hear a bit more about China's charm offensive. Xi Jinping is to speak on Friday evening at a trade services fair, the biggest such event in China since the COVID-19 outbreak when he will be trying to champion China as a bastion of multilateral trade and globalization, even as his government is waging an ever better trade war with Australia and falling out with countries left, right and centre. All this and more on a not-so-autumnal US-China trade war podcast. Delighted to be joined as ever by Joe Shin and John Carter, our political economy editors here at the South China Morning Post, to discuss what has been another very eventful week in the Chinese economy and in the US-China relationship in particular. We're going to lead with some numbers that came out overnight from Washington. This was the monthly trade data. It's got a little bit of a lag. The US monthly trade data for July, uh, which showed that the trade deficit with China is rising again. Uh, It fell in the early months of the year due to the coronavirus pandemic, largely because China wasn't able to export or produce anything because it had shut down its economy to deal with the pandemic. And subsequently, the US demand for Chinese goods fell as they went into a lockdown of their own. But the timing is interesting nonetheless because it comes just before the um, the US election shows that the deficit is persistently, stubbornly staying high. It also comes uh, at a moment when the US-China relationship is, is at a, a 40-year low. John Carter, Donald Trump set out on the campaign trail in 2016 to eradicate the trade deficit with China. For better or worse, you can, you know, a lot of economists thought this was folly. But what do these figures say about four years later, it's still persistently high and the trade war hasn't really done anything to to level it? 
Well, part of it is, uh, is a comment on the U.S. economy because Americans um, want things that uh, America doesn't produce and so that it imports them either because of lower prices or, or things that America just doesn't uh, have. And so it's a comment on the U.S. economy and, and uh, the consumption-led growth there. Um, but it's also a comment on Trump's tr trade strategy. I mean, it was a... Uh, a, a vote getter back in 2016 bashing foreign companies countries is always a good election strategy and china at that time was easy to make a scapegoat for americans economic problems um the fact that uh, he the U.S. has made virtually no progress on this after four years and uh, more than two years of a trade war uh, suggests that it was a bad strategy to begin with. And it's uh, it's not helping the American economy at all. Yeah. Just another number to, to add a bit of color here. May 2016 was when Trump took to the stage in a campaign rally in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He made a quote that really went down in the in the archives and uh, the annals of history. Uh, he said, because we can't allow China to continue to rape our country. And that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. It's very strong words. Those resonated strongly at the time, Joe Shin, and, and they really sort of set the scene for what was to come over the coming four years. How do you think the Chinese uh, government will be feeling they've fared over the past four years in terms of what has been a bruising uh, time with the United States, but the economy seems to be not in the worst shape at the moment? Uh, well, I think for the Chinese government, there's a, a sense of a little bit of confidence now that uh, China's uh, export capabilities are strong uh, enough. Uh, it will not be easily being swinged by uh, or being changed by uh, what Trump say or do. Because as you look at it, you know, at the very beginning of this year, people worried that China's export machine would be uh, collapsing during the coronavirus outbreak. But in fact, the share of Chinese uh, exports in the global total trade is actually increasing. And that has been, uh, that trend has been recognized. And uh, Chinese officials are seeing this trade, to con this trend to continue uh, in the coming, coming months. In other words, uh, China's export will, in relative terms, will become even stronger. So um, this, I think, partly... Uh, partly being uh, decided you know, by China's uh, huge manufacturing capabilities uh, built up in the last two or three decades. And it's very difficult to uh, shift from China to other parts of the world because China can produce while other, uh, other parts of the world cannot produce as many or as cheaply as, as China does. So for the, uh, for the Chinese uh, government, they, they, they think they have a very uh, strong economic fundamental there uh, to fight against these kind of uh, decoupling threats. And I think that's, uh, uh, that's a key message uh, uh, being widely accepted by Ch uh, Chinese officials. And one uh, latest example is to show is, you know, the upcoming, actually it, it started this evening, the uh, Service Trade Expo in Beijing, which President Xi Jinping will deliver a keynote speech well, we don't know the uh, the actual content of the speech yet, but I can guess, or we can uh, reasonably guess, what he will say is Chinese leader will say globalization is good for everyone, no matter whether you like or uh, do not like Chinese products. This is a win-win cooperation. That's why we have to uh, uphold uh, free trade. We have to uphold multilateralism, and uh, you know, um, uh, decoupling is not in uh, interest of anyone. 
And this is a message China is uh, trying to deliver to the world, uh, particularly to the United, uh, U.S. businesses. You know, China is still open for businesses like Tesla. You can still sell your cars in China. And, you know, Chinese products are still good choices for, for, for U.S. consumers. So just to continue to buy uh, uh, made-in-China products. And I think that's a, that's a message that Beijing is trying to project uh, through this uh, uh, expo, which yeah. will be the first in a large gathering. Uh, everything's out of break after coronavirus. Uh, uh, mm. the, the government is saying like uh, 100,000 people are going to visit this uh, week-long uh, event. So this is a, a fairly uh, big uh, uh, event. Joshin, valid points there. Uh, this is expo is obviously going to be closely watched. We'll look out to hear what Xi Jinping says this evening. But is it not a little bit uh, rich for China to say on one end we favour multilateralism, but then not really make the adjustments in the economy that to sort of offer a level playing field for foreign firms in China. And also at the same time, as it's voicing its support for multilateralism, it's starting a trade war with Australia. It's engaged in all sorts of activity. It's open on many fronts with uh, countries around the world now. So do you agree that there's perhaps some hypocrisy in, in, in those dual statements and dual flanks on the Chinese government's part? Uh, that's a very good point. Uh, because for China, I think the general trend is that they try to... Uh, they try to project this image that they're opening the market wider. And that's why, uh, and particularly for the United States uh, um, uh, businesses, as you can see, the Mofcom has been holding like uh, talks with, uh, um, with U.S. businesses. Uh, so, so did uh, National Development, National Commission for Development and Reform. And they are trying to say very nice things uh, to to the U.S. businesses, saying uh, you know the hostilities between Beijing and Washington will not change our policy. You know we are still open for business. We are all red carpets for you. And even Mofcom has launched a particular center called a Foreign Company Complaint Processing Center, which means if you have anything, if you have any complaints, just write or send an email to the center, and it, it will be taken care of. Uh, on the other hand, as you said, you know uh, why China is. Uh, um, uh, is doing something that is hard to understand to Australia, which is uh, which has a free trade agreement with China. I think China is now, that's my guess, I think China is now uh, picking up Australia as kind of um, um, an example, something like, you know, to kill the chicken and the frightened monkey, you know, uh, Australia is uh, teaming up with the US in terms of uh, um, uh, geopolitical interests. Australia is asking for independent inquiry into the uh, origin of COVID-19, which uh, Beijing really hates. So that's why I think Beijing is targeting Australia trade as kind of a warning to say, like, we are open for trade, we are willing to do business, but you cannot, you know, challenge us on other core issues, in, in, including uh, military and security issues, including uh, the uh, COVID nineteen origin, and I think mm -hmm. that's uh, that's that's a case, but uh, but but that, that is not uh, the overall design. Saying these measures are trade are economic, but the reasons are not about trade and economic. Yeah, John, what's your sense of whether U.S. businesses are still interested in widening their presence in China? Because I know we have seen some of the financial firms, at least over the last few weeks, take a bigger stake. Can you talk us through some of the examples of what's happening there? Well, one of the big elements of the phase one trade deal was uh, called for China to open up its domestic financial market, and that is occurring. We have seen a number of U.S. financial firms take 
controlling stakes in their joint ventures in China, Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan, for instance. Uh, we've just seen in the last couple of days that Citibank was uh, approved to be a custodian bank in China. That means they uh, can hold securities uh, for uh, investors um, and, and be the protector of those and invest those if the investors ask them to. Uh, they're the, only the second foreign bank to get this privilege uh, after char uh, the UK's chartered standard chartered bank and the first US bank. Um, we've also seen American Express uh, get authority to do uh, transactions in Yuan for their card services. So the Chinese financial market is opening up to foreign firms, particularly U.S. firms. Overall, because of the size of the China's domestic market, uh, foreign firms want to be able to do business in China. However, there are serious caveats here, given domestic regulations, given the impact of the, uh, the worsening relations between the U.S. and China uh, on the possibility of American firms doing unfettered business in China. I think that American firms are being very cautious of, about expanding their businesses in China because they don't know what the future holds. Yeah, I, I think one thing to add is that maybe, maybe for some uh, uh, U.S. businesses or Wall Street banks, they're looking a little bit longer term than Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump can be here for another year or another five years. But I mean, the China market would be there for many, many years. And if you look at the market potential, that's uh, uh, good reasons to say, let's have a strong uh, presence there. Because if you look at, uh, you know, so many Chinese, rich Chinese people, affluent Chinese people are trying to get their money uh, out of country or or just simply, you know, uh, to get a better return of their assets. You know, there are at least uh, several millions or tens of millions of Chinese people rich enough to hire these uh, um, these investment bankers to manage their wealth. So there's a, a, a real market potential there. So maybe they are looking at this from a relatively longer term view and expecting that uh, the U.S.-China relationship will not uh, go to a full confrontation as quickly um, as uh, um, some people in White House, in the current White House, as they expected. Zhu Xin, we, you had a, sorry, let me start again. Zhu uh, Xin, you, along with Rob Delaney, our US Bureau Chief, had a great story this week about the TikTok sale in America and how new export controls on the Chinese side might complicate that. We're used to discussing on the podcast U.S. export controls, which have starved Hong Kong and China of vital um, uh, sensitive technology. Um, but we don't hear too much about Chinese export controls. Talk us through what this is and why it might be a challenge to the sale of TikTok. This is very interesting because China's uh, usually it's uh, regarding, uh, you know, uh, import of uh, technologies. But China was quite light on the export uh, control of uh, uh, technologies. So this list has been not updated in the last 12 years. And then it came out saying technologies used by uh, companies like TikTok will be added to the export control list, uh, which means if ByteDance, the Chinese parent company of TikTok, is going to sell the U.S. operations of the uh, app to U.S. buyers, if this process involving export of technologies, it has to obtain 
approval from the Chinese government beforehand, so that this deal can uh, happen. So this is this is an interesting timing. The so Mofcom said yesterday that it is not targeted at TikTok because this list has been in the making for a long, long time, well before the uh, TikTok uh, case become a story in the United States. However, it also said for any Chinese company that will involving in uh, export of these technologies, they have to go to the uh, authorities. So which, which means it is, uh, it is leaving the TikTok deal in a very uh, interesting uh, situation. For one, one solution is that the, the deal can be still proceed uh, without the involvement of technologies. Uh, you, know, you know, many people are, are, are describing this as selling KFC, but without selling the recipe or selling a nice car without selling the engine. These kind of analogies. And the second one is like, okay, we follow the rule. So ByteDance will have to go through the Chinese uh, review process, which will take 45 working days in total to, to process. Upon the condition that... Uh, ByteDance can provide all the required documents in a timely fashion. So this will definitely postpone the deal to beyond you know, the, the deadline given by uh, Donald Trump for the TikTok deal. So we are, we are kind of in a, in a very interesting situation now and to see how uh, ByteDance and potential buyers are going to uh, work a way around this. Yeah. But, but the fact itself that the Chinese government has launched this uh, list is showing that the government is trying very hard to get... Uh, how to say, get an influence in this uh, in this deal, and uh, you know, making kneecapped uh, Donald Trump's efforts to seize uh, the the U.S. operations of TikTok. Yeah. So, so do you think it's going to go through, Joe Shin, or like, will will this happen, or is this basically going to put the brakes on it all together? Well, I think for now, uh, it's very hard to say. But uh, ByteDance has already said it will follow the rules. So for any deal that involves the technology, they have to go through this uh, uh, Chinese government review. The other, the other thing is, of course, the worst scenario or the, uh, the possibilities increasing for this scenario is that the deal just uh, going nowhere, just uh, you know, the deadline that broke and the U.S. just shut down TikTok and that's it. We shall see more about that, I'm sure, very soon. That's a story that's moving really quickly. It's hard to keep on top of. Um, John, what is on the agenda for the coming week? Well, on Monday, we have uh, Chinese trade data for August, um, which is expected to show further improvement. Uh, the improvement in past months, and I would remind that uh, exports were up on April, June, and July, and in June and July were uh, much better than expected, uh, which was in opposition to many analysts' forecasts that exports in the spring would be very bad because of weak demand in foreign countries due to the coronavirus. And so uh, Chinese exports have been better than expected, which has helped power the recovery in the Chinese economy. And that is expected to continue in August. But much of the export growth in previous months was in personal protection equipment, uh, the, the suits and the masks and the gloves that are worn as part of coronavirus treatments. Uh, that may taper off. People have been expecting it to do so for a while, and it may not, so we'll have to wait and see. But uh, it remains to be seen, given the uh, difficult economic times in the United States and Europe, how long uh, Chinese exports can continue to grow. Uh, also, later next week, we'll get Chinese inflation figures. Uh, we will be looking in particular at uh, food inflation and t among reports that China is in importing a lot of food 
food products uh, because uh, of uh, higher prices domestically. And of course, this flows down to the consumer who has to pay higher prices for everything from pork uh, to eggs to grain and gives them less purchasing power for other things. Um, and this is uh, difficult given the government's new strategy uh, to rely more on domestic consumption. Well, we'll hear more about that next week. For now, John Joshin, thanks a million for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this week's US-China Trade War podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham. Please take a moment to like, share, subscribe, wherever you've been listening to. It doesn't just make us feel good. It also helps other people find the podcast. So much appreciated on that front. You can keep up to date with all the stories covered on this week and all our other podcasts at scmp.com. Follow our team at SCMP Economy on Twitter. I am personally at F Birmingham. That's Birmingham with a B-E-R, not like the city. Don't tell the boss, but this week I've been moonlighting on another podcast talking about the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, all about export controls, potential tariffs, sanctions, all that good stuff on the SMMP's Inside China podcast with Mimi Lau and Kinling Lo. You can find that where you find this one. We'll be back same time next week. Please wash your hands, wear your mask, keep your distance, and we'll see you soon. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.